How will AI shape society? And how will society shape AI? I'm Katrina Ingram, host of the AI for Society Dialogues, a podcast that explores the work of researchers from the University of Alberta, a global leader in artificial intelligence research. How did Alberta become home to one of Canada's three elite AI institutes? I am Eleni Strulia, a professor of computing science and director of AI for Society, a research signature area at the University of Alberta. Alberta's roots in AI run deep, and the story of how we arrived at this moment goes back many decades. Today's guest is a pioneer in AI research and a pivotal figure in Alberta's AI history. Here's our host, Katrina Ingram, with Distinguished Professor of Computing Science, Dr. Jonathan Schaefer. Dr. Schaefer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So we're here today to talk AI history, and I want to go all the way back to your early days at the U of A when you first arrived here from Ontario as a PhD student. But before we get into all of that, I'd like to start with 2007, because that year was a game changer for you, for the university, and also for Alberta. That was the year you put this place on the map by solving the game of checkers with perfect play. So what does it mean for AI to solve the game of checkers? Think of tic-tac-toe. We all know how to play tic-tac-toe. And it doesn't take much for you to figure out that there's a strategy that if you adopt it, you'll never lose. You might win, your opponent could make a mistake, and you'll win the game. But if you adopt your strategy, you're guaranteed never to lose. Now, tic-tac-toe is not a particularly complicated game. There are only a few hundred different scenarios. But if you think of the game of checkers, which has got not a few hundred, but 500 billion, billion scenarios. That's a five followed by 20 zeros. It's a huge number. To solve a game like that means to get a result like tic-tac-toe that you know before the start of the game, what the result will be at the very least. And it turns out that when you do this massive computation, the game of checkers is a draw. If I play perfectly, or rather, (laughs) sorry, I don't play perfectly. (laughs) If the computer plays perfectly, it will never lose. It will draw every game or win it if you make a mistake. That is incredible to think about. 500 billion billion. I don't even know how to, you know, we talk about football fields sometimes. I don't even know how you come up with an analogy for, for something like that in the real world. Let me give you an analogy. Okay. Uh, this is not public knowledge because us scientists like to keep se- secrets, but um, the Pacific Ocean is actually a big sink. It's a giant sink. And what you don't know is that there's a plug at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. And if you pull that plug, all the water in the Pacific Ocean drains out. And it's completely empty. You didn't know that, did you? But it's true. So let's assume that we empty the Pacific Ocean. Now, of course, you have this beautiful house in Victoria right beside the now empty Pacific Ocean. And I'm going to give you a teaspoon. And I'm going to allow you to turn on the tap to water in your house. And what you do is you go to the tap and you fill up that teaspoon. And then you walk to the beach by your house and you dump that teaspoon into the empty Pacific Ocean. 
If you do 500 billion billion dumps of your teaspoon into this sink, you will refill the Pacific Ocean. That's 500 billion billion. It's a big number. That is incredible. I have a feeling the ocean would not be coming back anytime soon in that scenario. <laughs> and that's the interesting thing about this computation because there are naive ways to solve the game of checkers and they would take hundreds, thousands of centuries to solve. And that's where the magic of artificial intelligence comes in. How do you take a problem that with a conventional computer takes thousands, many thousands of years to solve and solve it in a reasonable time. My goal with the start of the project was to get the answer to the question, can I solve checkers? But I get that answer before I died. Wow, and so what did it feel like for you in 2007 when you got that answer? What was that like personally? It was uh, anticlimactic. It was actually a surge of panic. Uh, I knew that it was about to happen because I've been monitoring the computations for years. And uh, I was in California, and I just had this urge to check on this computation. So I checked into my hotel, ran up to my room, logged in, and was immediately upset because all the computers, I was using about 20 or 30 at the time, had stopped. And this happens often because there's a crash or something like that. And I was so annoyed because whenever there's a crash, it just takes time to reset everything and make sure things are consistent and there's no errors, this, that, and the other thing. And then I checked my mail and I had a single message in it. It said, ta-da. <laughs> I'd written a script long ago so that when the computation came to an end, it would send me an email message. I got my ta-da moment and I just sat back and thought, oh my God, it really is over. And so it was anticlimactic and uh, stunning. Well, well, thank goodness it actually had, uh, had happened before the big crash. Um, <laughs> that's, that's a funny story. And I wanna, I wanna go back though. So let's talk about how we got to this moment and what led up to this accomplishment. Starting with what brought you to Alberta in the first place, why did you choose to come here to do your PhD? Actually, I was a PhD student at Waterloo, and uh, I completed my PhD at the University of Waterloo. But as a PhD student, uh, I started working in artificial intelligence and building chess programs. Chess programs were just a way of demonstrating um, my artificial intelligence ideas. Uh, I love to play games, and therefore, uh, it was just natural for me to implement my ideas in a game-playing program. And so I was working on chess programs. And in 1980. Two, I met Tony Marsland, who was one of the pioneers in computer chess uh, or AI research using uh, game playing programs. And he was a professor here at uh, the University of Alberta. And in 2003, he invited me here for a visit and I came and I liked it. And I went back to Waterloo working on my PhD. And in 1983, I just became very discouraged with my PhD. Um, you know, the life of a student eventually sort of wears you down. Um, and uh, I started investigating the possibilities of getting a job. And I started interviewing and looking around. And uh, Tony said, well, you know, 
you haven't decided what you want to do, we're looking for a lecturer in the Department of Computing Science. Maybe you want to come to the U of A for six months or a year and be a lecturer and figure out what you want to do. So Christmas uh, 1983, I left Waterloo, drove uh, across Canada for the first time uh, to Edmonton, and in January started uh, as a lecturer here. January 1984 started as a lecturer at the University of Alberta. And you never looked back. I never looked back. I got motivated being here. I had time on my hands. I worked on it, finished my PhD thesis uh, from the University of Waterloo. And then in uh, the following year, 1985, was fortunate enough to get a faculty position here. Mm, so I've been here 36 and a half years. Wow. Wow. That is a long time. Um, I want to pause a bit on, on this um, idea of chess and AI because these two things get linked a lot. And, um, you know, some people say that uh, chess is this drosophilia of AI, which essentially means that it's a successful way to experiment and it's sort of like the fruit fly is to biology. And I just am curious about why that is. Can you explain why chess and AI are linked in this way? How did that story unfold? It, it's very simple in the sense that when people started working in AI, they understood how hard a problem it was. How do you mimic uh, intelligence in a machine? Some things are trivial. We knew how to electronically compute, say, uh, mathematics like add, subtract, multiply, and divide, but that's not really intelligence. That's that's a well-defined procedure. But when it comes to something much more abstract, like thinking and reasoning, people didn't know how to proceed. And it's sort of the adage, you need to learn how to walk before, or crawl before you can walk, and walk before you can run. And people said, look, intelligence is quite complex. Let's go back and, and start off with what we perceive to be simpler problems, and work on them, and try and understand them, and then gradually generalize them to something more challenging or more complex. And games were a natural uh, topic that people could relate to. The nice thing about games is that it actually eliminates a lot of the complexity in the real, uh, of the real world. So for example, a game like chess or checkers, it's only two players. The real world is interactions with hundreds, thousands of, of people. Um, it's uh, turn-based. My turn, your turn, my turn. It's not like the real world where everybody interacts in parallel. The rules are fixed. They don't change, unlike the real world where the rules often change. Uh, there's no elements of luck, like there's no dice rolls, there's no random chance. Uh, so there are many aspects to games that make them ideal Another aspect is it's all confined to an 8 by 8 board, unlike the real world, which can expand to fill, like, literally the whole world. So people just uh, started looking at these at games because they were, by some definition, simple. And also they had the nice property that people could understand them. Most of the early applications of computer science, uh, when the, the first computers were built, were... Uh, complex mathematical models for bombs, designing bombs, the trajectory of missiles, all, all sorts of military applications, which didn't relate to the average person. 
But if you wrote a program that played chess, people could relate to that. It was easy to understand. In some sense, it was a sales and marketing. And so they became quite uh, intimately tied, games like chess and, and uh, AI. Of course, uh, in the beginning, we thought games would be easy. And of course, uh, not surprisingly, uh, games turned out to be much harder than anybody expected. Yeah, it's funny how that happens with pretty much every problem. <laughs> it's true. Um, and you painted a picture of a, a lot of upside in terms of how games um, relate to working in AI. Is there any, I'm just curious if there has been any downside in kind of framing things around um, around chess specifically or around games. And I'm, I'm wondering about this notion of how we define intelligence and kind of reflecting back on that, do you think that there has been any downside in, in defining intelligence in, in maybe a fairly narrow way? Yeah. Um, there are people who, 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 will, who will criticize uh, a lot of the early work in AI uh, because it was narrow. And humans are not narrow in when it comes to their abilities. We have in our cranium this incredible computer called the brain, which is a general problem solver. I can play any game. I may not be able to play it well, but I can play any game. But that same um, brain, that same computer can drive a car, can write a book, can compose music, carry on a conversation. We're capable of doing anything and everything. And that kind of problem solving people thought was easy way back in the 1950s. And of course, turned out to be very, very hard. And so what happened is the field became uh, very narrow. People would work on a single application and try and address it, build a high performance solution to it. It became what many people would call narrow AI. I like to think about it as what we were doing was building a bunch of idiot savants. You would build a program that played chess. Wow, that was great. Couldn't play checkers or poker. It knew nothing about conversation. It knew, couldn't even balance your checking account. It couldn't do anything, but it could play really good chess. And so the early days or early decades of AI were all about building idiot savants, very narrow. And what's happened in particular, uh, I would say in the last decade, is there's been a revolution in AI and people, people's quest for the most elusive goal in AI, it's called AGI, not AI, which is artificial intelligence, AGI, artificial general intelligence. A computer program that is generalizable to handle a wide variety of applications. In the last decade, we've seen enormous work in building applications that are much more general, handle many more domains than just one at a time. And that's, um, it's amazing because the progress that we have seen over that period of time has been literally stunning. It's like um, AI for many years, many decades was making slow, steady progress. And perhaps because of the invention of a machine learning algorithm called uh, deep learning, 
as well as the advent of several other key technologies, people are now stringing these things together in innovative ways that are creating general solutions to classes of problems. So I guess the way I look at it is, in the beginning, programs would solve one problem. And now we're seeing programs that can solve a whole class of problems. And of course, the future is you have programs that can solve problems in many classes of domains. And that's truly exciting. That is exciting. Um, I want to stick with this theme, though, of, um, of the early days and talk a bit more about the people that were here at the U of A. So you mentioned Tony Marsland, but I'm wondering if you could paint a bit of a picture of what it was like in the U of A computer science department when you arrived here in the 80s? It was a very small department. I think when I arrived, I enhanced the faculty complement when I became a professor here in 85 to, I think, 14. So we were 14 people, and there was an AI-centric um, push in the department. We had Tony Marsland, we had Len Schubert, we had... Um, Jeff Sampson, and soon uh, Rene Elio arrived. So by 1986, perhaps almost, you know, maybe 30% of the department was doing AI in various different guises. And uh, the number of students that we had was relatively small. And so it was, it was a very special place. And I quickly fell in love with, with being here at the University of Alberta. Uh, at Waterloo, uh, it was a big department. I'd also been at University of Toronto before that, which was even bigger. And Alberta was small in a good way. It was more intimate. People would get together. People would socialize. And not just the faculty, the faculty and the staff and the students. Uh, to this day, I still keep in touch with many of the students that I, I taught in the 1980s because it was that kind of environment. It was like a big family. And, and inevitably, I suppose, as the department grew from about 14 professors when I was uh, here in the, came in the 80s to 50-ish today. And when you grew from um, about 80 undergraduates a year to maybe 250 undergraduates. And when you go from about 40 graduate students to probably about 250 graduate students a year, something gets lost because you're too big to have that kind of intimacy. So going back to the 1980s, uh, I have incredibly fond memories of this place. It was a fun place to be, to interact uh, with everybody. It was very special. So you said it was approximately 30% focused on AI. Was that unusual for a computer science department? Was that something unique? It was, and I don't know how it happened. Uh, it was just perhaps happenstance that uh, a core group got together in the early 1980s and for a small department like us, it was... Uh, it was very unusual. Uh, we were dominated by a field that many people regarded as a fringe field at the time. Uh, AI successes, which we all acknowledge today, were few and far between in the 1980s. And for 
you know, I'd, I'd like to think it was a brilliant strategic plan that somebody had that had this vision that AI was going to become something incredible in 30 or 40 years. And so we're going to start building this fantastic department today and concentrate on AI because that's the future. Or it was just dumb blind luck. You can choose whichever <laughs> one you think is the right You can the take right credit answer. for the brilliant strategic plan. But, you know, success <laughs> bred success. And um, although we lost some of the people in the 1980s, uh, we had enough that we attracted others. And we kept the ball rolling. And we had some research successes. And we started getting building a reputation and reputation attracted people here. And we, we had to work hard. Uh, you have to be good and lucky. And we were good and we were also lucky. We faced huge obstacles. I uh, spent a sabbatical at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh in 1989. And I, I began to appreciate what a top computer science department could do where they had, this is 1989, 80 professors and probably 15 or 20 working in AI. And you're in Pittsburgh. And it's, it's on a well-beaten path because famous people, they're going to go to New York, maybe they'll go to Boston, and Pittsburgh and Philadelphia aren't that far away, and they would just drop in. And being there was amazing because you had all these luminaries who would just drop in. Edmonton is, to quote one of my colleagues, in the subarctic. It's not on a well-beaten path. Anybody who wanted to come here had to do so as a special trip. It's not like they piggybacking it on, on another trip. So we had to work hard to bring people here and to build a reputation because we were so in the fringe, if you will. And uh, we just started doing little things, invited speaker series, things like that, to bring people here and... And slowly but surely, we, we built a reputation and, and began to grow, particularly in AI. Hmm. Well, I want to get back to your story a little bit, because you came here to work on chess, and you wound up solving checkers. So what happened? So let's be clear. I came here to do research in AI. I happened to use games. One of my supervisors strongly recommended that I uh, not work on games that I uh, do medical applications because there's money there and it will be far more important. And I chose not to because I didn't know all the medical literature and I didn't want to learn it. And games were fun. And my passion was to play games. And so what's wrong with combining my passion with my my research interests? So I came here and I was working on, on AI and demonstrating uh, my research in chess, and, and at times into various other non-game-related problems. And in the 1980s, I had one of the best chess programs in the world. In 1986, uh, my program tied for first in the World Computer Chess Championships, which was a fantastic result. And uh, Tony Marsland and I organized the 1989 World Computer Chess Championships here in Edmonton. Uh, TELUS, or AGT at the time, was the sponsor, and it was held at the convention center. And uh, I had aspirations to win that event, but my program crashed and burned and finished in the middle of the pack. But what, what was interesting is the, the tournament w was won by uh, a program that came out of Carnegie Mellon. 
And it was co-authored by Murray Campbell, who uh, was born in Edmonton, did his bachelor's and master's at the U of A before going to Carnegie Mellon to do his PhD. And the program was called Deep Thought, which eventually became Deep Blue. And we all know what happened to Deep Blue. So um, that was in 1989. But Deep Thought and the future Deep Blue made me realize that I couldn't compete. I'm a competitive player. I'm one researcher building a chess program and I want to win the world championship. I can only work on it part-time because I have to teach and do other things and I don't have much money to invest in, in the research. The new Deep Thought team had been hired by IBM. They had four researchers full-time and a couple million dollars budget per year. I couldn't compete. And I realized I could still do incremental research, but if I wanted to win in these competitions, I had no chance because the Deep Thought team had people and money, just resources that I could only dream of. And at the Student Union building one day, late in 1988, walked into the building and I met a couple colleagues. And one of them said to me, you know, Jonathan, you're doing all this work applied to chess, but why wouldn't you want to work on checkers? It's a simpler domain. It has all the same problems as chess. What's wrong with that? And I stumbled in my answer because I didn't really know have a good answer. And I went out and looked at it. And, and the reality is in that there was a, a researcher named Arthur Samuel who built a, a checker program in the 1950s and early 1960s. And in the 1960s, his program won a single game against a human. And that was in the 19, early 60s when computers were big, massive machines that filled an entire room. And this was a big news story in the 1960s, and the media portrayed it out of proportion. They said, oh, check, computers are now better than humans at checkers, and computers are better than the U.S. checkers champion. This player was not the U.S. checkers champion. And they extrapolated it that computers are now better than all humans, and even that computers had solved the game of checkers. And I, you know, I have collected articles from that period showing how the media just took one game and extrapolated just so out of proportion. And so I realized that there was an opportunity to take my work, apply it to checkers, and not have IBM competing against me. And so in 1989, after the World Computer Chess Championships, I uh, was disheartened at my program's result. And the very next day, literally the day after the tournament, I started writing a checkers program. Amazing. So, so this to me speaks to strategy. I mean, perhaps there was some luck involved, but you made a very deliberate and strategic choice to work on something that you felt um, you could solve and, and be the best at in the world. And here's another strategic thing that uh, you did as well. Um, I want to talk about the Alberta Ingenuity Center for Machine Learning the AICML, which was the precursor to AMI, which is the Alberta Machine Intelligence Institute. So you were one of the founders, along with Robert Holte, Russ Greiner, and Randy Gable. So what led to the four of you establishing uh, that institute back in the early days of AI at the U of A? Around about 1999, the provincial government made money available for research, and in particular, they, they did it in IT and they created an organization called i -Corps, Informatics Circle of Research Excellence. 
And I was on the board of that, and so I knew what was going on. Uh, and the, the government's attempt to bootstrap, if you will, uh, build some strength in, in information technology. And then the Alberta government committed to create a, a large endowment uh, for uh, science and technology research. They then opened up a competition to create what were called uh, um, Alberta Ingenuity Centers. And uh, I knew all the details of what was happening through i And I saw this as a great opportunity because at least in the IT world, uh, I had... Uh, I knew what was going on in depth in, at all the universities in, in Alberta. And just thinking about it, saying none of the things that are going on are truly exciting. They're not, they're not going to capture people's imagination. Yet, I mean, there's good research. Don't get me wrong. There were very good people doing good things. But if you're going to go after one of the, uh, these uh, Alberta Ingenuity grants to try and build critical mass... Um, I didn't see anything in computing that would excite a multidisciplinary scientific review panel except AI. And not just AI. Uh, in the late 80s, we hired Randy Gable, uh, who uh, I knew from Waterloo days. And in about 99, we hired Rob Holty. We were able, fortunately, to get him from the University of Ottawa. We also hired Russ Greiner. And these people, particularly Rob Holty and Russ Greiner, their, their expertise was machine learning, and they were really, really good. And Randy was, had an enormous breadth in AI. Machine learning was not his, his central focus, but he knew it. And I was doing things, not necessarily in machine learning, but it was related and I just saw that we had critical mass in this area. And I sat down with the three of them one day and I said, look, this new research endowment, this Alberta Ingenuity Fund wants to create these centers of excellence. And I quite frankly think that we have an opportunity here with machine learning. It's the future. It's exciting. Um, there are already real-world examples that show how this could be transformative. And what's wrong with us being visionary and say, we can do that and we can take it to the next step. And we worked on the proposal. And I think, um, to be fair, I think Randy, Rob, and Russ put a lot more effort into the proposal writing than myself because they were much more core to to the machine learning, and we brought in a professional writer to work with us, and we submitted the proposal. And there were only two funded in the entire province, and ours was one. And the kudos we got back from the committee showed that we, we hit the nail on the head. We were visionary, uh, people could see the potential of where machine learning could go, and they bought into the story, the compelling story that we made. And that's actually an incredible result because that was 2001 that we got it. And machine learning really only became big and the big hot topic less than 10 years ago. So we had at least a decade head start over many of the top universities in the world. And it, uh, quite frankly, um, kudos to the Alberta government for 
investing in, in this research, long-term research. Too much of the research funding in this country is, is very short-sighted. You submit applications for a one or two or three year, sometimes a five-year project, and you, you usually get the minimal amount to try and do what you want to do. But even five-year projects aren't long-term and visionary. And the government backed this up and said, we want a long-term vision. We're willing to put a couple million dollars in a year and build up strength and expertise. And um, a lot of the success that we're having today really is a direct result of a bold government funding decision in 2001. And it probably doesn't happen very often, but in this case, it does seem applicable. And, and now Amy is one of three elite AI institutes in Canada and, uh, and the only one in Western Canada. Um, so what role do you think that Amy has and, and is having in creating the conditions for you know, Alberta's current position in Canada's AI landscape? There are many things that Amy is going to accomplish, is accomplishing and will accomplish. But there are two things that um, really stand out to me. The first is it allows us to move forward. The whole world is excited about AI and there are massive investments everywhere. Without any kind of investment, the opportunity for the University of Alberta, for Amy, for Alberta in general, would be lost. And so, yes, thank you for these kind of, thank you to the government for these kind of investments so that we can stay in the leading pack. But the two outcomes out of these kind of investments are first is the students. The undergraduates, the graduates, the postdocs, even the, the technical support staff that we can attract to he here and train and get them to do great things. Because these people are in hot demand around the world and we're at a competitive disadvantage because, as I said earlier, we're in the subarctic and we have to work harder. And so having this money allows us to bring amazing people here. And even if they don't stay, the um, spin-off effects of having them here reverberate for years. We've had people spend a year here working with us and they love it here and they end up going somewhere else and then they send their students here or they continue their collaboration. So it's the people and the people are important because many of these people come to Edmonton, like the quality of life, like the environment, just like I did way back in the 1980s, and they want to stay here. And so the second effect with Amy is that they're helping local companies, local, I mean, uh, not just Edmonton, but all of Alberta, to help them be leading edge, understand the new technologies, be early adopters rather than laggards. And of course, from the first part, they're, they're, they're providing the trained students and people that these companies can then hire to do amazing things in AI. And so, you know, the jury is still out as to how effective this strategy will be. But quite frankly, in my view, it's the right strategy. You need a critical mass of people. We have researchers, but we need all of the rest of the other people, the technical people, the experienced programmers, the students. And we also need the companies who are willing to hire these students. It's, it's a shame if we tr 
if we revert back to the way it was here in the 1980s, 90s, and even in the 2000s, my view is that we were um, an exporter of talent, not an importer. What I meant by that was people knew that we were good and people from around the world would come to Edmonton and we would train them, but there were no jobs. And so we would be exporting them out to the world and not keeping them. Now they come here and they get trained. And because we have jobs, great companies, companies that are visionary, companies that are growing, they can get a job here. They stay here. We're bringing the world to Edmonton and we're keeping them. We've gone from exporting talent to importing talent. You've talked a, a bit about some of the challenges that we have um, being in the subarctic, being in Edmonton, um, and also a little bit about how things are changing. We now have jobs. We now have a bit more of an infrastructure. Um, but, you know, if you could think about what, what are the great things about Edmonton? What are the good things? What are we doing right? What do we need to do more of? Well, I mean, that's that's a hard question, but... Uh, at the micro level, at the university level, what we're doing right, at least in the computing science department, is we've created a very welcoming and friendly environment. People come and enjoy being in that kind of environment. Uh, I spent sabbaticals at many other academic places in the world, and I didn't enjoy being in those departments. They were fiercely competitive. Uh, there were bitter rivalries. There were people with massive egos and difficult personalities. Uh, you had to tread carefully in, in these places about what you could do and what you couldn't do. That's not what it's like in Edmonton. We don't have any of these bad apples. It's, uh, the department is, is uh, a warm and welcoming place, very collegial, and that reflects from the faculty down to the support staff uh, and the students. And so I think that helps in, in terms of creating productivity and encouraging people to want to stay here. Mm -hmm. But it goes beyond that. Uh, people, particularly foreign students, find uh, Edmonton a friendly place. It's got all the amenities. The, the weather is the one disadvantage. Uh, many people come here and fall in love with the mountains or, or the, uh, the hiking trails uh, in the River Valley or, or whatever. You know, Edmonton isn't the most spectacular city in the world, but in terms of the quality of life and the environment, it's, it's head and shoulders above many of our competitors. Mm -hmm. And so we're doing things right there. Uh, there are other things that we're doing right and some things that we're doing wrong, I would say, on the economic side. But that's probably not the right, this is probably not the right time and place for that <laughs> we, discussion. We won't get into that. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it at collaboration. And, and that actually is something that I, I don't think we should underestimate because it feels like at this point in the world, um, having the skills to work together, being cooperative, those are really, really important things and, and being able to support a, a community. So I also want to talk a bit about artificial intelligence and ethics. And this is where our paths start to intersect because back in 2018, I went to a talk that you were giving and you were telling the audience all about some of the harmful negative consequences that have been happening with certain AI systems. And afterwards, I approached you and asked you who is working on this uh, issue and you said not enough people. 
And so that led me to sign up to do some work on ethical codes with you to learn more about uh, this issue of AI and ethics. So can you tell me a bit about um, what got you interested in that topic and, and when were you first kind of alerted to, to what was going on in that realm? I think the issue is, like many other scientists, uh, I have tunnel vision. You work on AI or your whatever research problem you're working on in whatever area, and you tend to ignore things that are peripheral to it. But over the last decade, I'd become much more aware of of AI. I'm a I like science. I love reading interesting stories, and in the last decade, particularly uh, in the field of AI, because of the popularity of machine learning. I started seeing stories that reflected poorly on our field. Like any technology, people invest time and resources to uh, discover new things, uh, almost always with the intent of creating a better world, newer ideas, newer products, things that will generate wealth, things that will improve our quality of life, whatever. and. Any technology, doesn't matter what technology you, you talk about, you can always envision a, a side where that isn't true. You can always imagine people who are using technology for their own purposes, uh, even if it hurts other people. And I started seeing stories like that that bothered me. Um, and it accelerated. And... Uh, I felt, especially being now that I was a more senior person, that I had more visibility, I felt that I had to take more responsibility for the technology that myself and my colleagues were, were inventing. I thought it was much more appropriate to put the, the, what was happening in context and try to correct some of the things that I felt were, were wrong in the public's perception. One of the things I learned very quickly working on my chess and checkers programs and poker programs, we got a lot of media and I very quickly learned to ignore the media. Yes, I, I would happily sit for an interview, whatever, but I never read the articles that they write or if they film me, I never, never um, watch what happens. And the reason is because very early on, I would just get so angry because people would take this information and they would spin it in the way that they wanted, put words in my mouth, uh, make claims that weren't factually true, and it would just get me angry. And you could say, well, just ignore the media. And I said, no, the media is part of what I am at the University of Alberta. Any media is probably better than no media, so I'll do it because the university wants me to, but I don't like it because of the errors. And I just became much more aware of what the media was talking about in AI and got very angry at the misconceptions. And so uh, I felt uh, as a public person who, who talked, gave many talks, uh, that I needed to start correcting what people thought about AI and dispel some of the myths and or put them in the proper context. 
So that led to me being much more interested and aware of the societal impact of AI and getting into ethics and things called AI safety. And not that I'm a researcher in those areas, but I just wanna be aware and do what I can to help educate people. The, the more aware we are, aware we are of what the technology can do and what it can't do and what it shouldn't do, uh, the better informed we can be to make sure that we protect ourselves from, let's say, nefarious users of this technology. So tell me more about the, the misconceptions or the misrepresentation, or what is, um, what is the media getting wrong in your opinion, and what do you want um, average people to know about AI? Uh, the first is that uh, computers aren't going to take over the world. Uh, we're not going to have killer robots uh, marching down the streets, killing any human they see. I mean, the, there's sci-fi stories that talk about that, and you can extrapolate the current technology into some dystopian universe where this this happens. Um, but the reality is 99% of AI researchers are developing technology to improve our quality of life. And... Um, the scenarios of AI taking over the world are so far in the future. Uh, we have lots of time uh, to get this right, to think about what the future might be and put in proper safeguards. You know, one of the things is nuclear power, to use an analogy, came upon us uh, rather quickly and people didn't have a chance to think about it and put in the proper safeguards. and. Of course, a couple bombs were dropped and there were some nuclear accidents and uh, lots of nuclear testing. And it took a long time before people were able to get the proper safeguards in place to prevent uh, nuclear accidents happening, whether they be international treaties or regulation. AI is, and these dystopian scenarios are much further in the future. We have the time right now to think about what can happen and put the rules and regulations and agreements in place that these terrible scenarios don't happen. And so that's one of the important things that people have to understand is, yes, it might be a problem down the road, but we should be being proactive about these scenarios rather than reactive. The second thing I want to mention, uh, which is a little bit more finer grain granularity, really revolves around data. Um, we are seeing problems with the use of not just AI, but other forms of technology with the use and abuse of using, of gathering, disseminating, and analyzing data. And unfortunately, um, AI systems learn, but they only learn from what they're given. And if you give them data that's biased, the AI is gonna to learn to make biased decisions. And right now we don't have the proper safeguards in place. You will use products that may have AI and machine learning behind the scenes, and you don't know, for example, how they were trained, and therefore you don't know what kind of biases that they may have. And subtly, the AIs could be influencing your behavior or your your buying habits or the the, the the things that you watch on television or on, on Netflix or something like that. Or it could be more insidious, they're producing products that um, are affecting people's lives, like uh, 
implicitly or explicitly have racial profiling in it or discrimination or, or other types of things. And this is now and it's real. And I think there are a lot of companies who have products that um, the AI is disadvantaging uh, segments of the population because of bias. And these companies don't understand that these are problems and don't understand how they can correct those problems. And we need to make everybody much more aware of the potential damage that data abuse uh, can have. And uh, I firmly believe that we need to put in some guidelines and standards to, to protect us all from this kind of problem. Yeah, there, there seems to be a lot of work that, that needs to be done there. And somewhat um, on a related note, um, the University of Alberta has recently launched a new signature research area called AI for Society. And it's really trying to take this interdisciplinary approach um, when it comes to AI and how it's being used in society um, and really incorporating social scientists, humanities, and those outside of computer science also working with computer scientists. And I'm wondering about um, your thoughts on uh, the field of AI itself and then also working with the other uh, areas in an interdisciplinary approach, perhaps to solve some of these complex problems. Your thoughts on that? AI is unique. We've had other deeply profound technologies that have changed the world, nuclear technology, uh, DNA and genetics research. Um, you can talk about all sorts of technologies that have changed the world, but the changes are limited to certain areas. Nuclear breakthrough doesn't change or influence my shopping habits, for example. Uh, DNA analysis and, and the potential there doesn't affect the shows that I watch or the, the magazines that I read. AI is unique in that AI touches everything. My mantra is, it's AI in X, choose your X. It's AI in physics. It's AI and marketing. It's AI and energy sector. It's AI and archeology. span It's AI in literature. AI will change everything. It touches everything. The scope is vast. It's hard to even think of anything that will not be directly or indirectly impacted by AI, which means this is not a problem for scientists. It's not like with nuclear technology where you get all the physicists together with some policymakers and you come up with the rules. It's not like DNA where you get all medical people together with some ethicists and you you decide what's ethical and what's not ethical and what the proper procedure should be. AI touches everything, which means the only way to understand what's what can happen and how it will affect society in every possible way is bringing everybody together. And it's not just computer scientists or AI researchers. It's medical people. It's social science and humanities, it's law, it's politicians, it's business people, it's medical people, it's ethicists, it's everybody. Fundamentally, AI requires multidisciplinary 
uh, responses, multidisciplinary insights to virtually everything that we're doing in this field today to better understand what the potential upside is and avoid the low probability but potential downside. So uh, the, the purpose of AI for society is spot on. It's taking a technology which some say, oh, it's just those computer geeks over there. But understanding that this is so deep and so profound how it will change the world that we need to be talking about it broadly and everybody needs to be part of that discussion. Well, that is a fantastic setup for the rest of this podcast series because we are going to be talking to many of the people that you just mentioned. Um, we're going to wrap up our interview. It's been fascinating, um, but I, I just have one last question for you because I understand you're working on a new book, and I wanted to hear a little bit more about that and what's next for you. Well, I've always liked to do things that have had impact. And I'm at the point of my career where writing another research paper it's cool and exciting. It's great for the graduate student. That's fun. But I don't need another research paper on my resume. And over the last few years, I've felt that my biggest impact has actually been talking to people and educating people about AI. And so if you're going to talk the talk, it's time to walk the walk. And so I'm writing a, a book, which... I'll call it AI for non-scientists. It's not technical. My mantra is it, it's, it's a, a book that my, my mother can read and finally understand what I do. I'm trying to write something that's fun, engaging, topical, and allow people in a, in a, a very um, humorous, um, gentle way to understand what AI is and what it is not. And it's not just the technology but it's also the implications of the technology on society. And so some of the things that we talked about, like dispelling myths, is, is part of the book. And to make the book um, accessible, it's all about games. And so uh, games are used throughout the book to illustrate the basic ideas. And then, of course, there's some real-world, non-game-related uh, applications that show you how this works. Uh, but I'm hoping that... When this book gets finished, uh, it actually reaches an audience that uh, will uh, appreciate, um, better appreciate what AI is and, it, and isn't. And if I can help educate the world, then that's my goal. Sounds amazing. Well, Dr. Schaefer, I just want to say thank you so much for being here, for sharing your personal story, and telling us more about the history of AI in Alberta. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a fun interview. AI for Society Dialogues is a co-production between AI for Society, a signature research area at the University of Alberta, and the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies. Find out more about AI for Society at AIforsociety.ca and the Cool Institute at kiosk.ualberta.ca. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homelands of First Nations and Métis peoples. Our technical producer is Corey Stroder, and our theme music is Seeing the Future by Dexter Britton. Special thanks to Dr. Scott Smallwood, 
and the Sound Studies Institute for providing recording space. Stay connected to AI for Society. Sign up for our newsletter at AIforsociety.ca. You can find out more about me, Katrina Ingram, at ethicallyalignedai.com.